It's time for a whole new season of Mindful, the official podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic and fierce divisions exacerbated by social media are making life more difficult for minority communities, advocates for justice, and for those who just want this pandemic to be over. We'll be discussing all of those subjects and more on this season of Mindful, sometimes once at a time and sometimes, like today, all at once. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the Communications Specialist at the CPA. Welcome to Mindful. Today, we're speaking with a psychologist licensed in Alberta and Ontario. Zoraida Dada's path to practicing psychology is likely much different from that of any other CPA member. She grew up in South Africa and went to university during the height of apartheid. She was an activist against the oppressive system, a scholar despite the odds, and part of the intelligentsia that helped to rebuild the country as apartheid ended and South Africa transitioned to become a democracy. My name is Zoraida. Um, and I'm a psychologist. I have been a psychologist since 2003 in South Africa. I'm also a licensed psychologist in Alberta. And I'm also um, since 2007 and just recently licensed in Ontario since January to 2021. So I'm, I'm formerly from South Africa, of course. Uh, and I've been in Canada since 2006. What was that like? What's the move like going from South Africa to Canada and becoming licensed as a psychologist here? Uh, I spoke to somebody who came from the United States to Canada recently, uh, and he was talking about all the hoops he had to jump through and the difficulty in doing that. Was it a tough process in 2006? Oh, yes, very, very much so. And I think, um, you know, it's a tough process for many different reasons. I I think it's very, very hard emotionally for people to leave their home of origin and to come to a new country. Um, I think there's issues around acculturation that plays a very, very big role in terms of how you acclimatize here. Uh, when we came, I um, we didn't have any family here. So it was just me and my, my, my two children uh, and my former partner. Um, and it was just four of us that came. So everything was new, you know, there was nothing, there was no, we didn't have any family uh, or anybody to uh, rely on for any emotional support. Uh, So we basically had to start from scratch. I remember when we left, um, I refused to bring a container or anything of things. I thought, okay, you know what, this is like taking tea to China, like they say, you know, and so I thought, okay, when we come to, uh, to Canada, we'll bring just the bare essentials. So each one of us was allowed two suitcases. And so we came with eight suitcases. And that was it. Um, the adaptation process was really, really difficult. Um, you know, I, I have so much of respect for individuals who for whom English is not their first language, because even though English is my first language, it's still an adaptation to a new country that requires a lot of, um, you know, a lot of thought. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it has implications that you don't even think about. Um, and in fact, uh, me coming here, I wanted to understand what that experience was afterwards 
notes and I was doing some research and I couldn't find anything, um, you know, uh, around it at that time. So I created my own model of understanding, my own framework for understanding the transition process, you know, the internal transition process that one goes through when one goes through such a significant change, uh, you know, understanding a cultural relation. And now I'm, I do a lot of work in that area as well, which is to help immigrants to understand uh, what that uh, the, the impact of the immigration experience, because uh, it can be quite an isolating experience. Um, you know, I really believe that identity is a social construct. So when you leave home, uh, you know, your identity is formed, right? From the time you're a child, people know you, they know all about you. Um, and when you come to a new place, you actually persona non grata, and that can feel like a very isolating, almost like a debilitating experience. And so you have to start building your own identity in the new country. And I think that that's probably the most uh, most difficult thing for people to have to do. I imagine so. And so what does some of that work look like now, right? I, when you immigrate to a new country, uh, like you said, it can be a very isolating experience. And right now, we're all very isolated uh, in the way that we're communicating with one another. Uh, what does that some of that work look like right now? We do see people in person. Of course, I have to make sure that we follow the necessary protocols, uh, masking, you know, social distancing, making sure that we, um, you know, I disinfect the environment. So, yes, I do see people uh, in person as well, but I also see people virtually as well. I think that with COVID, I think there used to be very much a stigma before around virtual counseling, like, you know, almost like um, I think, um, you know, there may have been a stigma around is it as good as meeting a person in, you know, in person. So I think with COVID, there's been, you know, there's obviously been some drawbacks, but I also think that there have been some uh, key opportunities for us in the mental health field in terms of telehealth, you know, providing access to people who are not, who generally would may not be able to have access. So, uh, so yes, it's been, a, it's, it's been quite a shift even for me to have to transition and pivot, you know, to, uh, to virtual counseling, which was before COVID uh, hit, I would say was maybe like maybe even 10% of my practice, you know, not even. And now it's like 90% of my practice. Uh, well, maybe not 90%, maybe about a 60-40 split between 60% virtual and 40% now in person. But yes, there were moments at the beginning of COVID when it was about 90-10%. Yeah. And so what are some of the concerns that people have now that maybe they didn't have uh, five years ago when they came as immigrants, uh, just in terms of that isolation? Has it made things more difficult? Has it raised a number of new problems for newcomers to Canada? I think it, it has in, in different ways. But, you know, the one thing that I think was more a very equalizing factor for, uh, around COVID was that everybody started having the same experience that immigrants would have where your family is cut off from you. You know, if there's something that's happening, you can't just get onto a plane and fly back, you know, those kind of things. So in that way, it was very equalizing. It's not a good, you know, it's not a good thing to be equalized okay. in, but but it, it created a very uniform kind of an experience in terms of that, like, you know, lack of contact with family or the inability to travel back home, the inability to go for funerals, you know, those kind of things. So I think in that way, it was quite equalizing. Um, but when you speak about um, the isolation component of it, yes, definitely. I mean, what I've seen is that, you know, um, COVID uh, triggered pre-existing conditions um, and, and brought it more to the forefront. 
I think, you know, um, but of course, if you've never been isolated, um, you know, in my previous podcast, I spoke about freedom and how I see freedom, you know, as a, like oxygen, you know, and if you don't have oxygen, that's the only time you recognize how important it really is, you know, right. in your life. And I think that that's what's happened. It's the curtailing of people's freedoms, actually, you know, the freedom to be able to associate, you know, with other people, right? It limited right. that. Uh, where you go, how you, you know, you present yourself, you know, in, in a way, in many ways, it's almost like a, a form of neo-apartheid in terms of the impact that COVID has had, you know, where it's put curfews in place, your inability to be able to socialize and go uh, where you need to go, you know, um, and things that you need to do. So your freedoms are very, very curtailed. Um, and so from an isolation standpoint, certainly, I think, uh, you know, with, with the immigrant population, I think part of the immigrant experience because it is so isolating i think there's a different uh, a different um um uh, experience now um, with COVID, you know, because they've already had that experience of isolation before and have had to adapt to it. So, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize, but I do think that from what I've seen uh, with my clients who are immigrants, certainly that has been part of the experience. Um, but I do think that for, for people who, you know, Canadians who are, you know, natural Canadians, uh, uh, naturalized Canadians, as well as Canadians who are born here, I think that experience is very very different because it's very real the freedoms that that are curtailed i imagine so and i think that i mean the discussion around freedom also sort of takes a different viewpoint i think depending on where you're coming from and what your preconceived notions are right and so so many people now are looking at this curtailing of freedoms not as a result of the virus, but as the government being heavy handed and that the government is the one curtailing my freedoms. And I see so many people liking likening it to apartheid, for example, a lot of them liken it to the Holocaust. I mean, these you know, overblown comparisons that really uh, don't fit the bill, but the infringement on my ability to go out and do something without wearing a mask is to me the worst human rights abuse I've ever experienced because I've never really experienced one, right? <clears throat> and so with that comes a, a very big rise in xenophobia and in you know anti-immigrant sentiment, in racism. Uh, is that something that, uh, and that must have a huge impact on new Canadians who are uh, just coming over here now who are, you know, maybe just came before the pandemic started. Uh, is that something that you uh, end up talking a lot with about your uh, with your clients? I think that most immigrants who come to this country have had certain experiences where their freedoms have been curtailed. Um, I think coming to the country, coming to Canada is a form for them of experiencing freedoms that they may not have had the opportunity to experience back home. So coming into this particular space um, and experiencing the pandemic and the curtailment of, you know, the, the having to live through a pandemic, I think it's, it's not, it doesn't, you know, I don't want to generalize here, but from what I've seen, and maybe I can speak from my own personal experience, 
it's not the same as the it's, it's not the same level of curtailment of freedom as what I experienced under apartheid. So I'm going to use myself as an example because I, I don't want to generalize, you know, about other people. Um, but yes, that's what that's how I see it. So, like for example, when when uh, because I've grown, you know, we grew up uh, in South Africa. Um, you know, there was AIDS, uh, HIV. You know, we, we've lived through a number of different pandemics, like much more than we could ever experience here in Canada, really. Um, so you you get to understand how a pandemic works. You get to understand that, okay, I need to do certain things. You do, you, you have to understand that. Um, and so, so that's, so I've had it from my own personal experience, I've had the experience of living through pandemics. So when this happened here, it was just like, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, that's what it means. This is what it takes. You know, I've got to pivot. I've got to do, uh, you know, virtual counseling, you know, those kind of things. And I think, I think so rather than speaking about immigrants themselves, maybe if I speak about people who've had their freedoms curtailed before they came to Canada, I think their experience of, of COVID is very different. They understand what needs to take place in order to be able to recover from a pandemic. Right. And to do you know what I mean? And if that means that, you know, um, you have to wear a mask, then you have to wear a mask. If you have to, you know, do a virtual counseling, then you have to do virtual counseling. You know, that's that's what we need to do in order to get through it. So I think it's more of a pragmatic approach uh, than a shock or an internalization around it being, um, you know, something that's more philosophical or malevolent. And let's talk about your experience uh, specifically. You talked about when you moved to Canada, it's, you know, quite a culture shock, right? A new immigrant coming to Canada uh, and just showing up and trying to figure out where you fit in the society and how you're going to practice and all that. But you already experienced, I would imagine, an enormous culture shock back home in South Africa as South Africa moved from apartheid to doing away with apartheid and i'm wondering if you can walk me through that transition a little bit what was it like at that time going from what you'd grown up with your whole life to a new sort of freedom that maybe didn't hadn't existed before okay so i, I want to explain apartheid was uh, I, I just need to give a little bit of a context in terms of apartheid because that will make it a little bit easier for for the listeners to to understand where i'm coming from um Apartheid was a political dispensation primarily, um, which means that it was a legal dispensation. So racism was legalized in South Africa. But, but a lot of people don't know that it was also socioeconomic in nature. Okay, so it was designed in order to take away whatever economic gains black people, non-white people had had and give it to the white people. Okay, so opportunities, all of those kind of things were, were given to white people based on, 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 the, on, on race. Um, so when I say that it's a legal dispensation, there were a number of different laws that were underpinning apartheid, things like the Land Act, which uh, forcibly removed black people from farms and put them, you know, in, in reserves, uh, similar to what we've done here in, in Canada um, with our indigenous populations. Um, um, so, so they did that. It started with that in 1913 or something like that. And then when the nationalist government came into power, then they really, you know, focused 
focused on on on, on separate development and those kind of things. So they they brought in the system of apartheid, but apartheid was already formulated from since 1913, so it was already in existence in different forms, but not form for formalized in the way in which the nationalist government formalized it. So and this was in 1948, right? Like so, this was many years later. So there were a number of different laws that were enacted, forcible removals, right? We were forced. So so when I describe apartheid, I always say that apartheid was malevolent in its approach. Um, it was pervasive. It touched every, every aspect of our lives from where we were born, um, where we went to school, uh, what we ate, where we ate, who we socialized with, who we dated, who we um, married, um, uh, where we um, uh, where we recreated, the types of sports we played, um, where we lived, um, you know, um, uh, the kind of public transportation that we used, uh, you know, beaches were were segregated, uh, benches were segregated in parks, uh, parks were segregated. Certain parks were only allowed for certain people. Um, so, so I think it's important to recognize that because it was really pervasive. Like it, it touched every aspect of our lives. And so, when I get asked the question, like, what was it like growing up in South Africa? I need to provide that context because it's that context. Text, um, that um, makes it understandable, you know, that why we were so separate. Um, so there were forcible removals. Like I remember my grandparents were forcibly removed. We were forcibly removed from one area of, uh, of, the, of the town where we, where we had our businesses and, you know, we had our lives and we were forcibly removed to go into through the Group Areas Act, um, you know, to go and live in certain areas. And so certain areas were designated as areas for people to live. Um, so like in Johannesburg, we have Soweto, which is the black area for black, ethnic, black, indigenous people to live. Um, but what was really interesting is was the way there was there was a method to this madness because it was really designed socially too, right? So the way in which it was designed was that white people had access to the central business district. They were living closest to the central business district. And so why that was helpful was that white people could access jobs, they could access, you know, downtown core, they could, you know, their lives really were, un, were untouched, really. And they were allowed, you know, transportation, the roads were built, all of those kind of things were built for them. Whereas the rest of us were now pushed out to the outskirts of the cities. And so, you know, for us, we had to travel in, which made it more difficult for us to travel in. There were curfews, there were a whole range of different things. So it was, it was in, virtually impossible. Um, but apartheid also impacted where we worked and what kind of careers we, we, we went in into and you know uh, where we um, um, what type of work we actually did because there was job reservation system that was in place there were so many like all the kinds of barriers that you can actually think about in order for people to live a life all of those were enacted and the thing is, because it was a legal dispensation, um, it, you know, fighting against apartheid, being an activist against apartheid was exceptionally difficult, right? Because there were things like uh, detention without trial, uh, you know, a number of different people were murdered, thrown off John Foster Square, which was the, which was the police um, headquarters in Johannesburg, and they would be thrown out of the window, right, uh, and died. Like I mean, nine story, uh, stories up. Um, so, so, so there was a real 
there were real consequences, uh, you know, and consequences like you could go, you, you know, detention without trial, uh, um, solitary confinement, banning individuals, which meant that you would be a criminal, you couldn't speak in public, which was Winnie Mandela's experience a lot of the time. Uh, and I went to school, Winnie Mandela, Mandela and I, she, she and I shared a class to, uh, at school together, at university, I should say. And so, you know, she was a banned individual. So there were, there were real consequences. If you, if you burnt the flag, you would be charged with treason, which would mean that you would be executed. Like, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, like, we're not talking about, okay, you know, like a slap on the wrist, like you get a fine. No, it's a life and death situation. So in order to be an activist under apartheid required a lot of, um, uh, you, you know, you had to be really committed to be able to to do that for myself, you know, um, uh, attending uh, protests, uh, we had to we had to do protesting, um, you know, um, uh, and 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 when we were when we were protesting, the police would come, they would throw tear gas at us, you know, um, disperse the tear gas, they would hit us with uh, with rubber, uh, whoops, um, which would leave welts you know, um, uh, for days, and we would not be able to, you know, walk, you know, I mean, really, really cruel things. And, and they would, and they would obviously put us in jail, if you were, right. if you were caught, right, they would chase you down, similar to what's happening in the United States with the Haiti, you know, when I was looking at that, I was just having flashes of yeah. what happened to us under apartheid. So those were some of the things that we had to go through. So we either used to, uh, you know, uh, be formally like there was a right, right as Assemblies Act, which prevented us from, from being gathering more than 15 people at a time, right? right. So so when, whenever we had more than 15, that was then considered to be an illegal gathering, and that would allow the police to come in and literally arrest us. So we were constantly under that, you know, under that specter. The other thing is that this, uh, the nom nominee system, which a lot of people don't know about, but it, the nominee system in South Africa allowed us to, allowed our, we couldn't have businesses, we couldn't own businesses in South Africa as people of color. So what we had to do was we had to get white people, like say, for example, if I wanted to go into a business, I would get you to sign, register the business in your name, and I would run the business, right? Right. And so and I would pay you a fee for that. Mm -hmm. So we did that, you know, in terms of business registration and also where we could live and stay like we couldn't stay, uh, you know, in, in, in white areas. So what we would do is we would get, you know, a friend, friends of ours and we'd ask them to sign a lease in their name, we would pay them a certain amount and we would we would give them the full amount for the lease. And above that, for using their name, we would pay them a certain fee. So there were those kind of things. So when we speak about activism, you know, it's all different types of active activism. It's sitting down, uh, silent protesting. It's protesting literally, you know, uh, uh, you know, not attending school, not attending classes, you know, sitting on the grass and protesting, um, you know, doing a whole range of different things. So there were so many different uh, activities that we were engaged in. And I've had friends who sadly, uh, you know, were killed uh, uh, under the apartheid system because of the activities that they were involved in uh, as, as activists. So moving from that to apartheid, uh, to democracy, I, I remember the day Mandela was released because we were not allowed to keep paraphernalia of Mandela. 
there was we were not we didn't know what Mandela looked like his paraphernalia was banned he was a banned individual and so if you were caught with his paraphernalia you would you would serve jail time you know so uh, we didn't know what he looked like and I was so excited just to see this man you know who was coming out of jail um, because he was an icon and you know one of the things is that I don't we would never I, I at least in my in my view we would have never been able to achieve freedom without Mandela we just would not have been able to do that and the reason why I'm saying that is because Mandela had a following like you know we all believed in him he he epitomized hope you know he was the idea of freedom he epitomized that. And so, you know, we all gravitated towards this person who personalized uh, an idea, you know? Mm -hmm. So when he was, when he was freed, um, I, the sense of relief, like, I, I, I don't know how to describe it, the sense of absolute joy and relief that I experienced. I, I don't think I would ever experience that in my life, um, you know, because this was what we were fighting for. This was what we were fighting for. And Mandela was so humble because he thanked all of us, you know, um, for the fact that we all were part of the struggle and that he's just a humble human being. And he actually said in his speech that he's our servant because we helped together, all of us together helped to change apartheid to a democracy. And so when he was released, that set the tone for, okay, now we can start looking at creating a dem demo democracy. And what does that mean? And part of the roles that I played in, in terms of helping to transition the country to a democracy was, you know, um, we, uh, I was very involved in helping to put, down, put policies in place in organizations, uh, uh, diversity and inclusion policies, uh, you know, um, giving input into like, for example, the SACWA Act, which was a South African Qualifications Assessment Act, uh, you know, the Labor Relations Act, um, I was involved in the project secretariat in South Africa to establish the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, uh, because we needed that as an organ of the state to be able to run uh, the, 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 that's the, that's the, the organ of state that uh, the the Labor Relations Act rests on you. Without that, you can't have the Labor Relations Act. You're not able to uh, enforce the act. Um, so I was involved in that. I was involved in, I, I worked for a, what is called a parastatal, which is a government owned organization. I worked for them uh, in terms of putting, um, uh, uh, and, and, and part of my job was to create equity by recruiting people of color, by putting in policies in place uh, in terms of that uh, so that we could have have equal representation um, by, you know, changing the policies that we had in the organization that were racist based, you know, and were, were, were preventing people from getting access. So that freedom that I experienced, and I was also part of the International Electoral, Electoral Commission, counting votes in okay. the first election and oh my god I, I that experience is i'll never forget that so coming from there to canada the reason why i chose canada was because canada had you know canada is quite advanced socially uh, in terms of freedoms and you know rights for children and those kind of things and that was actually what attracted me to canada so the transition from south africa to canada was bittersweet because we'd worked so hard to 
bring a democracy into the country and then to leave it, you know, it, you know, it was only 16 years later that, that I left to come to Canada. That for me was, it was, was bittersweet, but I don't think I'll ever have that kind of an experience in my life where I, you know, where I was a part of such a big social transformation. I, I don't think that that would ever happen in my life again. I don't think so. Well, I, I imagine there have been very few social transformations as large as the one that took place in South Africa in our lifetimes anywhere. Tell me a little bit more about the, the activism during apartheid, right? You go to a protest, the police come, they break it up, they throw tear gas in, they shoot rubber bullets, they arrest people, they throw them in jail, some people are executed. What motivates you what gets you what gets you out to the next protest after that happens what what makes you go to the next one and then the one after that and the one after that to keep on going you know i think what kept us going was the understanding that we needed to do that you, we needed to bring change we needed to have freedom like you know we we were oppressed and severely oppressed you know uh what kind of a life is that? And, you know, um, part of the activism for me also was, you know, fighting against the label that said that I am, I am inferior, you know, right? And, and also getting an education. My father always used to tell us that in order for you to have freedom, in order for you to ever overcome apartheid, you need to study, you need to go to university. And my sister, who was very much involved in the activist struggle, you know, activism and active activism, like, I mean, she did th things that, you know, were really, really acti activist related, you know, like helping uh, people over the border, you know, um, being involved in burning the flag and those kind of things. Like she was really, really um, very involved in that. And she was sharing a story with me once where she said to me, you know, she was approached by somebody who was an activist and he said, to her he says there's only two ways we're going to win this this um we're going to win freedom one is through the pen and the other one is through the sword and he told her he says you know what you are a scholar like my sister's very bright very very bright and he told her he says i don't want you to lose your life on the battlefield you need to get an education because we need the education. We need educated people who can come, you know, after the, after the struggle to help rebuild South Africa. So he said, pick your battles, make sure that you are focusing on getting an education. And ever since he said that to her, she stopped doing the other stuff that she was doing, you know, um, so that she focused on, on, on her education because we needed educated people. Uh, to to be able to take over, you know, and be the intelligentsia of the country to help transition the country. Like, I mean, we needed people who were educated. That's why so many people were sent by the ANC out to like Russia and uh, China and, you know, Libya to get an education um, so that they could come back and, 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 and give back in terms of their education to rebuild the country. The ANC would send people to Libya to get an education. So Libya was more free and uh, less oppressive than South Africa. Absolutely. And, yeah. 
Absolutely, because we couldn't, uh, in terms of education, we had a limited amount of seats. We were, you know, they had the quota system in South Africa. So, and we weren't allowed to study anywhere. Like, I mean, we, there were only certain universities that was designated. We needed, we needed government permission to go to university. We needed funding, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, government permission or permits to be able to study at university. So, you know, like, I mean, the, the struggle was real, <laughs> you know, so there was no way that people could get into the country and study. So they were exiled, they were gone in exile, and they would study in exile, and they would come back and, and, and that's how they came back and, and, and re, you know, that's why we have so many, the black intelligentsia, as it's called, most of those people received their education in exile. And so you and your sister, and you said you shared a class with Winnie Mandela. I mean, these are the people who were studying, taking, going through higher education, becoming that intelligentsia. Uh, did you do yours in South Africa? And I did. what was that like? Uh, I presume you started doing that under apartheid with this quota system. Correct. Uh, and was it the same for your sister? Uh, yes. Yes, all my all my siblings and I studied under apartheid because um, I finished university. I finished my degree in 19, um, 1989, which was the from 1985 to 1990 was the height height of apartheid uh, activism against apartheid. Like it was it was a lot of bloodshed very messy, like you described. Uh, so I we were in the throes of it. And what it was like was, you know, I, Eric, the thing that I, that comes to mind is it was a social revolution, right? And we were experiencing that in our universities, like our universities were the, were the platform, because that was the only place that we could gather, so many people could gather, right? Um, and, and the universities uh, were the space of uh, social consciousness, you know, and social justice, right? And so, so we and, and the people who were going, the non-white people who were going to university at that time, we were the grounding people for post-apartheid uh, intelligentsia in the country. Like, I mean, we were very, many of us were the first in our families to go to university, many of us. Um, so, yes, it was the grounding, the space. So, you know, I speak about the formal education, right, which is, you know, going to class and going and getting an education, but it was the social education, the social justice movements that we, we were involved in, you know, um, that, um, that helped to tip the scales as well. So it was very much, uh, what's the word, um, the word that I want to use is, um, you know, there was a social awakening. Um, and, 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 and we were very involved in that. So we were, we were playing dual roles when we were at university. We were the students, but we were also the activists, mm -hmm. you know. So it was, it was both. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine how that might have been. I, why psychology? What made you choose psychology as your path when you decided you were going to get that higher education? Uh, what was the motivating reason there? Yeah, so so we would we, we we could only do certain careers. We could only follow certain careers, like being a teacher, right? Because then there were jobs for Indians in Indian schools. We were considered to be Indian in South Africa, uh, or non-white. Um, so 
you know, or become a doctor or, you know, become something that your community needed, right? Because you can't find a job, at, at, um, you can't go and work for large organizations because there was job reservation. So it was only, you know, jobs in, 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 in large organizations were only for whites. Like we weren't allowed to get jobs with, uh, in, those, in those kind of contexts. So we had to choose roles or careers where we, we it would allow us to work within our communities. Like we had to choose those kind of careers. Um, so when I went to university, I actually wanted to become a physiotherapist. I, you know, that was the first thing I wanted to do. And so then I started off with a BSc degree and I thought, okay, yeah, let me try this. But I was not, I was, I didn't do very well in physics and chemistry and I'm not that way inclined really. And so I bumped into my, one of my first limitations, which I didn't realize I, I had, or I was in denial of, I guess. And so then I thought, okay. And in, in my, under, in my first year, I decided I'm going to do biology as well as psychology. I thought, okay, let me try the psychology. I didn't know what psychology was. We didn't have psychologists. Like there was no such a thing, right? Like, I mean, um, and so, so I went to university to study. So, so then when I passed psychology and biology, I thought, oh, okay, you know what? Maybe I'm going to try psychology. And so I went and I and I and I I gave it a go, and I really fell in love with it because I started recognizing what an impact psychology has, you know, on people's psyche, on our ability to move forward in our lives, on our ability to uh, be able to see things differently, on uh, you know, our ability to have hope, um, and also. I was always curious about how the human mind worked. I was always curious about why do people hate one another so much? What is this whole apartheid thing? Like, why? Why Why does this happen? How does this happen? You know, how does somebody like Mandela still have the ability to be as compassionate as he was, you know, and to, and to recognize, you know, and meet people at a human level? Like, I, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't fathom that. For the life of me, I couldn't do that and so so it was really I wanted to understand that and also when I started studying psychology I started recognizing that this is what the the the, the, the empowerment that it gives you as a you know as an individual when you've been through a counseling session that is really helpful uh, the way it can help you to change your perspective and to change the way in which you look at the world and the, to change the way in which you present yourself to the world the power that is entailed in that the ability to be able to understand yourself and the fact that my parents were never given that opportunity they were never given uh, you know, we were told from the beginning that you are nothing, that you are inferior, that you are stupid, that you are, you know, you, uh, you, 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 you're just a waste of space on this earth, literally, you know, and treated like we were animals. And, and, and I speak with a sense of privilege, though, when I say that, because I, I recognize that the level of apartheid and the level of severity of apartheid against myself, who is Indian, is very, very different to what was uh, meted out against people, uh, you know, indigenous populations, which uh, who suffered suffered much more, much more cruelty, you know, a, a lot more, more severe and restrictive, you know, for them. Um, but yes, so so that's what what made me follow this. But I didn't I didn't go into psychology 
immediately after university. I went into human resources um, because that's the time it was opened up for us to be able to do, you know, to actually get into human resources, um, uh, to be able to work in organizations. And I recognized that organizations need a, needed a great deal of change, like they needed some change in organizations, social change. And so I chose that path. And it was only after that that I, I went into psychology proper. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what happened uh, for me. But um, you know, I, I see psychology as my good, my goodness. I think I think we're so privileged to have uh, you know uh, training in it and to be able to do the work that we do to help people at a very human level, at a very fundamental level. I agree, and and just the notion of understanding the way even your worst enemy's mind works, right? makes them a little less of an enemy and a little more uh, of a compassionate figure, right? I think. Yes, yes. And, and also the other thing is, you know, I think, and I was really curious really about how Mandela, you know, why he thought the way in which he did. And, you know, and that really informed the fact that it, the, 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 the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that when, uh, when Nelson Mandela was freed from Robin prison, that you didn't know what he looked like, that yeah. because you were, because he was an illegal figure, right? Nobody had photos of him, but I, when he was released, I remember it, I think I was probably 11 or 12, I think at the time, but I knew what he looked like, right? Here in Canada, he was the central figure of the fight against apartheid uh, for us as well as I suppose uh, he was in South Africa as well, right? But around the world, there had been a free Mandela movement for a very long time. And he was the face that absolutely everybody else outside of South Africa knew. Uh, and I've always wondered that, uh, certainly as a child, the only thing I knew about South Africa was that Nelson Mandela was in prison and he shouldn't be. I didn't understand apartheid. I, I was too young to really pay attention to the news. And I'm wondering that you know, you see these movements now, and this is a half-formed idea. I sent you an email with my half-formed idea earlier, uh, but movements now like Black Lives Matter, you cannot point to one person who represents Black Lives Matter. You can't point to a hundred people who are faces of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and I'm wondering if in a way it gives a movement more power to have a centralized figure or more power not to have one because here in the West, I feel like we ignored the atrocities of apartheid in favor of focusing on freeing Nelson Mandela. Do you know what I mean? So I, I wonder if, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. If uh, a central figure can be galvanizing for the movement itself, but for the outside world, it might take away a little bit from what the movement is actually trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. You know, the first thing that I want to say is with any movement, there has to be an ideology. Right. Right. With any change, there has to be an ideology. I mean, if you go back in time in the world, you know, like Galileo, you know, anybody who be like, you know, believing that the world was flat versus the world was round. Like, I mean, that was an ideology. That was an idea. There wasn't any evidence that it was flat or round. It was an idea. And so ideologies, I think, are required, are a requirement for any movement to take place. I, I, I believe that. 
whether ideologies get personalized in the form of an individual um, or whether they remain as ideologies and the power behind that, I, I don't think I, I am able to speak to that very well because the way I see it is that I see Mandela, Mandela was, was our idea personified. He personified the idea of freedom. I mean, he said that at the Rivonia trial where he said, you know, freedom is an ideal that I strive for. It is also an ideal that I would die for. He said that at the Rivonia trial. So he was very much the kind of individual, you know, he personified that. Uh, he personified our perseverance. You know, he, we were always like, if Mandela can do this, if Mandela can go to jail, if Mandela can, you know, be in a solitary confinement and he can survive that, we can survive this. We can fight for this. Right. So, so, so I do think that it's an ideology, not so much an individual, but I do think that in certain points in history and certain, um, you know, times in history, there's a time and a place for where you do need a personification of an ideology in the form of a person that people, because human beings are very tangible, you know, we, we like tangibility, we like to touch things and feel things. And so I think we iconize these individuals because they represent something bigger than what we could even possibly imagine. Right. Um, you know, you know what I mean? Like they represent an ideology that's, that, that we can't put our hands around. So, so yeah, so, so I think that, you know, in, with, with everything that we've seen, I think everything is an, it starts off with an ideology. And even with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think George Floyd was, was iconized, you know, as a, you know, like he became the central figure for the Black Lives Matter movement. Martin Luther King became the central figure, you know, in America. So I do think that as human beings, we, um, we look to, certain icons in order to be able to uh, maybe get that tangibility that we can't necessarily get from an idea. Right, right. I, I totally buy that. I can see that. And also, I think, I mean, I think of Gandhi, for example, and I think one of the only reasons a lot of us in the West know anything about the fight for Indian independence is because Gandhi was such a massive figure in that movement and that if it hadn't been for him even if things had gone the same way that they did go we now might not know very much about that history because there's no one figure pulling us in right there's not one guy that ben kingsley can play in a movie and you know yes. and similar maybe i uh, i would say in south africa right there's not the guy that morgan freeman can play in a movie Yes, exactly. And, you know, to your second question, uh, you know, I think you asked the question around, does it galvanize the movement or, you know, does it detract? You know, I think, I think it depends on what lens you're looking at it from. So if you're looking at it from the oppressor's lens, uh, oppressed person's lens, like say, for example, ourselves in South Africa, right. then yes, I mean, absolutely. I don't think, I don't think in a hundred years we would have gotten the freedom 
I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but Mandela was central. He was key to it. He negotiated freedom. He negotiated the new constitution. You know, I mean, he was a central, pivotal figure for us. So, so, so I think if you're looking at it from the lens from an oppressor standpoint, I think, yes, there is a need to be able to find something that you can hold on to, someone that you can hold on to that says, you know, yes, I believe that we can make this happen. And yes, you can follow me down this path. I do think so. But I think from when you're speaking about it, I think you're speaking about it from a different perspective. I think the angle you're using is the angle of allyship, right? Right. The angle of, and, and, and I think that that's different. And I, and I don't know if I can answer that question because I don't know you know, from an allyship perspective, what that experience looks like, you know, like I, I don't, I don't know. I only know what it looked like for me um, as, as a person who was oppressed. Right. And I think I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that experience looks like, right? The, the allyship experience, because you want to make sure that you understand all the facets of an issue and can therefore advocate for the right outcome to that issue but it becomes reductionist a lot of the time where you know so many people say well I celebrated Martin Luther King Day right I changed my profile pic on Facebook to George Floyd I and then it's that's kind of where it ends and I feel like it's giving them sort of an easy out a lot of the time I and I'm I'm not sure if that's true or not You know what, here's what I'm going to say to that. I think what's really important is to recognize that all of these, even what could be considered to be small things, like changing your your Facebook profile to a black, you know, blackout profile, or, you know, recognizing Martin Luther King Day, those kind of things. I think the thing that we must never forget is all of this, these are signs of resistance right? Mm -hmm. All of these are. And all of these give moments of pause to an acknowledgement. They are acknowledgement of the fact that these things happened. You know, they are acknowledgement of it. So in many ways, it can, you know, even though it may seem simplistic, but these are all signs of resistance, right? These are all signs of, okay, you know, an an acknowledgement that this happened. And yes, because now I can't, you know, I, I, in terms of apartheid, at that time, I was very physically involved, like, you know, we were all physically involved, you know, doesn't mean that now, like, I feel like speaking about apartheid today is a way of of making people understand what our experiences were like. And, you know, then it becomes something that becomes a conversation starter or, you know, so it keeps the ideology, the idea of what we went through alive, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and a part of people's people's psyche and consciousness now and that may be all that some people can offer you know that may be all that they that they can do is to you know uh, show resistance in this way right right they may not be able to show resistance in those huge ways of protesting and you know getting arrested and you know so solitary confinement and those kind of things but the still is is a form of protest it's still a form of resistance 
although uh, this episode is going to air later, uh, I'm cognizant that I'm talking to you right before we have our National Day of Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada. At the CPA, we have a number of uh, things that people can do, uh, things for them to read, webinars for them to uh, watch and attend, courses that they can take. And so we've all been given the day off tomorrow to take these courses and to uh, pay some attention, right? And the idea is that it becomes a start, that this is the first step uh, for a lot of people. They haven't been in this for a long time. This is the time to stop, take, you know, reflect and take a moment to begin that conversation about what we did to Indigenous people in this country in residential schools and so on. So I'm not going to ask you about that specifically, but when it comes to apartheid, when it comes to uh, not an ancient history, something that ended only very, very recently, and you talk about that conversation and that it's good to have the conversation uh, continue, what do you hope that conversation looks like when it comes to apartheid today? Do you want it to be looked at as something historic? Do you want it to be looked at as something that's still an ongoing process to uh, move forward? What do, you, what do you hope that conversation looks like? Well, you know, you raise a very, very important point. In fact, I was speaking to my friends um, you know, after first of us, I was speaking to my friends in South Africa about their experiences when I, just before I did, did this podcast, I've been speaking to my friends. And the one thing that we came, the one thing that we all acknowledge is that there's almost no discussion about apartheid in South Africa. There's no formal conversations. Nobody speaks about it. It's almost like it never happened. You know, it's almost like in Germany. Oh, no, there weren't any concentration camps. What are you talking about? You know, it's almost like we're rewriting history by not by not speaking about it. And what I know about racism is if you don't acknowledge it, you are never going to be able to move past it. You're not going to be able to heal from it. It has to be acknowledged. And so I was just speaking to some friends about, you know, about this. And I, you know what I would re really love to do is to be able to help my fellow South Africans to be able to heal from apartheid. Because apartheid affected three to four generations of people. Right. My great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, <laughs> myself, you know, directly, right? Because it was it was going on for almost 50 years. And then my, my children, my children are impacted by it indirectly through my experiences. So there's an intergenerational trauma because it, it's traumatic. Racism is traumatic. Right. You know, and so... So it's about healing from that. So yes, from a historical perspective, yes. I mean, part of the healing is to recognize that it's something that happened to you. It doesn't define you, but that's part of the healing journey, right? Moving from accepting that it's not a part of who I am, but really it is something that happened to me. Um, and that's part of the journey. So, so when you speak about, uh, you know, is it historical? Is it something about healing? Yes, there are totally intertwined because we cannot we cannot heal if we don't acknowledge that it happened we cannot heal you know uh, how can we um so yes i think it's i think it's a combination of all of those things and that's where i would like to do my work you know going forward i mean i do a lot of work in social justice even here in canada like i helped to change one of the local laws we have here uh, the legislation um you know i petitioned together with another organization to have one of the laws changed here with regards to recognition of psychological harassment 
at, at work as a grounds for compensation, uh, you know, um, a, a, as, as a form of injury at, at work, right? Psychological mm -hmm. harassment. So, you know, I helped to do that. I've, I've been very, very active, uh, you know, uh, in terms of changing policies, even in organizations that I've worked in. Uh, so that, you know, from a social justice standpoint, because it's a very, very big part of who I am. Um, you know, it is, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think you can grow up under apartheid and not have an understanding of what social justice could look like. Um, and so I have, you know, my antennas are very sensitive to that. So I try to engage myself in, a in, in social justice and social advocacy work. I do a lot of work with people who have been traumatized and harassed at work, you know, um, uh, with, with the immigrant populations, uh, you know, trying trying to get them to be able to adapt uh, and and you know um, uh, help them to transition to this to this environment. So I'm very involved in all of those uh, in all of those things. So you know, it's informed my work. Like I mean, we know that there are very few uh, BIPOC um, um, psychologists in Canada. We know that. Yeah. And I mean, I live in Alberta, so it's even more so here. It's even more pronounced here. So you know, providing access, you know, um, understanding and 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 validating uh, clients' experiences when they do go through racism here. Um, you know, so yeah, so doing all of those things and 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 continuing to do those things. I, you know, I um, I'm so thrilled that the CPA. You know, there's a new section. That hopefully that will that will be created the black psychology group uh, you know which i a uh, black psychologist group which is what i would like to be involved in the very involved psychologist group as well so there's a lot of there's a lot of initiatives that i want to be uh, and continue to do my work is infused with social justice like i you know once you see something you can't unsee it right yeah. And, you know, like I having had that experience in South Africa, my antenna are fine tuned right. to be able to do this work and everything it's infused in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. I, that It's interesting that the way you say that, right, once you've seen something, you can't unsee it, I think. And tell me if this makes sense to you. Uh, what you described uh, apartheid in South Africa is laws that specifically segregated uh, minority communities, black communities, Indian communities from the white community, provided all of the opportunity, all of the wealth to the white people at the expense of everybody else. And it strikes me that this is a lot of the social justice that, that we're fighting for here in Canada today, here in, in North America in general, uh, and across the world, is that the wealth is concentrated among the white people, that opportunities are less for people of color and uh, indigenous people, black people here in Canada. And that really one of the reasons that it's not a bigger issue for more people is that a lot of people either pretend or actually can't see it, right? It's a lot of white people, I think. And that it strikes me that in South Africa, where it was actual law, that it was written down, made it far more explicit, made it more brutal, but also made it more visible uh, that you can really, there's no avoiding the fact that this is actually happening. Whereas here, I think there's a way for people to have some sort of plausible deniability and look away and say, I, you know, I don't really think that's actually what's happening. 
Very true. Absolutely. Like, I mean, with forcible removals, my grandparents used to have a business and, you know, when they said, okay, sorry, you're not living here anymore. We want to rezone this and we want it to be the downtown core where white people are going to own businesses. They, they came in and bulldozed, you know, the, the, the buildings. So you, right. one minute you had a business and the next you didn't. And, you know, so th there were real implications, like you said, you know, I mean, the laws that, uh, you know, forcibly removed, uh, I, I mean, forced black farmers to leave their farms and, and, you know, push them out into reserves where there was no agriculture, where there's, the land was arid, you know, those kind of things. So, yes, um, I, I hear what you're saying about the plausible deniability. And, 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 you know, it's interesting for me because even when sometimes when I have conversations with my white friends from South Africa, the, you know, there's some plausible deniability there too like they would say well we didn't vote in the you know it was our parents who did that and you know so so it's not us so don't put it on us you know it's not us who did that but yet you benefited from that system you right. know and, and 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 that is something that is never acknowledged right what's acknowledged is that no it wasn't us because it was a generation before us but the acknowledgement of the fact that but they set you up for life, really, and at the expense of us, you know, um, that does not get acknowledged. And I think that that's where the trauma also resides, right? So you're culpable in, in that way as well, whether, whether, you, whether you actually did the act or whether you benefited from it at the expense of somebody else. So the plausible deniability I see is very much when people will say to me, well, my parents voted, not me, right? I right. can understand that. But I don't think you can ever deny, you know, there's no plausible deniability for the impact that you and the and the and the and the benefits that you experienced as a result of what took place. And I think we don't focus on that too much. I think we focus more on that piece. Like I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Right. And I think so in that case, tell me where I'm I'm curious, where do you think South Africa is now? I I think about the United States, they end slavery with the Civil War and Lincoln, but then, and a lot of people think, oh, that's the end of it. We're done with it. But then comes Jim Crow. Then comes uh, racial segregation, uh, you know, discriminatory voting laws, all of these things designed to make sure that Black people don't get a large, uh, you know, their share of the pie of American wealth all the way along the way. All of these things persist to today, where we still see an enormous wealth gap. Same thing in Canada, residential schools and all of the things that we put in place to make sure that uh, our Indigenous population didn't get their share of the wealth of Canada and, and so forth. So I'm wondering, you know, apartheid ends, everybody seems, we're transitioning to democracy, there's a big celebration, but there's a tendency for people to then say oh well it's over we we took care of it we're done there must be more work to do where do you think south africa is now uh, along that line to truly egalitarian equality for everybody you know i think that's such a that question is so that answer is very complex because i don't think it's singular you know i think it's multifactorial i think it, right. it, it has a lot to do with it's so complex so I'm going to attempt to answer that question <laughs> um, to the best of my ability. So here's what I'm going to say. I think, I think denying that apartheid happened is not helpful right. to getting egalitarianism. 
I think recognizing the impact of apartheid and the brutality of, of, of apartheid on individuals uh, and the trauma that it's created without necessarily, um, you know, um, um, speaking about it or addressing it in any way, shape or form, I think that that's not helpful. I think in order to get to an egalitarian society, I think you need, you, you need certain building blocks to be in place, right? And part of it is the acknowledgement, the communal, communal societal acknowledgement that we did, that we all had a role to play in terms of what happened here. So, so I think every people are on different journeys in, in terms of a journey of healing. And I really think that the healing journey is the, 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 the vehicle that will allow us to achieve egalitarianism. And, and why do I say that? Because it gives you the opportunity to be able to take accountability for what has transpired. And once we start taking accountability, that then opens up the space for forgiveness. That then opens up the space to say, okay, yes, that that did happen. I'm, that did happen. I'm not gaslighting you. Yes, you did have that that experience, you know, right. and. And then based on that, coming together to be able to then move the, the society forward. You know, I think the genius of Mandela was in the way in which he transitioned from apartheid to, to a democracy. Like, I mean, we had, um, our constitution was created by 26 different political parties. I don't know if a lot of people know that. I did not know that. Yes, yeah, 26, like he insisted on that. Mandela was very insistent on that. That's why he and and de Klerk won part of it, why they won the Nobel Peace Prize was because of this, you know, and so... so 26 different political parties, getting them all to come. And I mean, we're talking across across the spectrum, you know, from communism to, you know, uh, 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 dictatorship, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, uh, very, very right wing, you know, right. Yeah. far right, you know, so, so we're talking about everything and in between, and we created the constitution with 26 different parties. And I think that was, that was what created, uh, um, you know, a sense of equal participation. You know, where everybody felt like their voice was being heard. But here's what I'm going to say. I think the biggest thing about dictatorships and, you know, and um, is, is that they premised on fear, fear that somebody's going to come and take what I've got and I don't want to share and, you know, those kind of things. So it's all about fear. You know, in South Africa, there was, a, there was a, a, an Afrikaans word called swart hapar, meaning the black black uh, black uh, danger, literally meant black danger. And so, you know, it was all premised on fear, right? The whole thing was premised on fear. So you, you, we cannot get to egalitarianism if we have fear. Right. For as long as we have fear, you can never get to egalitarianism because fear sets up the, sets up the, the, the situation for control. And that was what apartheid was. It was about fear and control, fear and control. And fear interchangeably, the word you could use is power and control. You know, that was right. what it was about. But it was based on fear. So for as long as we have fear, we we will never be able to reach egalitarianism. So, you know, how do we then deal with fear? Part of dealing with fear is awareness, right? Making people aware that this is, 
you know, this is what's happening, you know, in our world. This is, you know, and that I'm speaking to you, you're a white human being. I'm not a white human, a white um, individual, but I can still have a conversation with you and we can still get to know one another. You know, we can get to understand one another. And I know that it sounds very simplistic, but that was really Mandela's um, approach too, where he said, you know, we need to meet people as human beings first. Right. You know, step off everything and see people as human beings. I think what we do is we we don't we 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 see people we we fear we fear other people we fear what they represent we fear that they represent uh, you know um, uh, uh, we'd have to share the wealth we'd have to give something if you know they they represent loss like we're going to lose something if we if, right. you know if we um, if we um, uh, don't fear them and so that becomes the the basis for the fear. So I, I, I know I went a long-winded way answering your question, and I don't even know if I did, but uh, yeah. No, that, that's great. And I think that's, uh, I think that's quite insightful, right? It does really start with fear, right? Anytime that there is a super vocal ideological cause that people are fighting for, whether it's crazy, like, you know, no masks, or whether it's justified, like Black Lives Matter, right? The motivating thing in all of it is fear. And I think you have to really distinguish between whether it's a justified fear, whether it's based on a reality or whether it's a fear that's just been created for political purposes, right? The purposes of power. Exactly. You know? And then that power is also based on fear, right? So, right. yeah, so I think, I think it is about understanding. It is about creating that understanding, but I also think that it is also about the acknowledgement of the roles that we all play taking accountability for it right and taking accountability for the fact that we are beneficiaries of a system that was set up to uh, uh, benefit us like we are the beneficiaries of it uh, does it make it right or wrong does it make it fair or unfair no but the fact of the matter is we have to accept that and we have to accept that yes we we do have you know we are the beneficiaries of that now that we have that knowledge now how can we manage that how can we manage the next step forward you know um so like for example with mandela you know it, it was uh, i remember there was a time when mandela uh, started learning to speak afrikaans and you know afrikaans was a very you know just you, there, there was a lot of emotion around afrikaans because you know it was the language of the oppressor and in the 1976 uprising the children didn't want to study afrikaans we were also forced to learn afrikaans even though we didn't want to learn it um but you know the 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 Soweto uprising where the police went in and they shot about 700 uh, unarmed uh, uh, children uh, at school uh, in 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 um, you know, at, at a school in Soweto, and that was it started becoming known as a Soweto uprising. And so, when Mandela made the choice years later, like in the you know 1980s or uh, 1970s, I think it was, when he made the choice to start learning how to speak Afrikaans, that was really uh, you know uh, it was seen by his colleagues uh, in the ANC to be a really almost like a treasonous thing how can you speak the language like this is what we've been fighting for and that's when Mandela said you know I how can I how can I work with people I don't understand and how can I get their respect if I don't speak their language so how can I understand them if I don't speak their language right 
you know? And so then he learned how to speak Afrikaans. He self-taught himself to speak Afrikaans so that he could have those conversations with, you know, uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, with the apartheid government so that, you know, he could move things forward. So I see it in the same way. I'm like, you know, you know, that saying that says, you know, seek to understand rather than be understood. You know, that's what I learned from, uh, from Mandela when he, when he did that. And I really believe that. I believe that we have more in common than we think that we do. And, you know, Mandela was right when he said, you know, love comes easier to the heart than hate, because hate is some, if you can learn how to hate, then you can learn how to love, you know, and love does come easier. And I think, I know this is going to sound so cliche, but I do think that understanding, respect, uh, you know, meeting people where they, uh, as human beings first, that's a sign of love. That's what we need. Just an understanding, you know, not just, but, you right. know, that's yeah. where we need to start. That's a great place to start. And you talk about healing. And I mean, now you're in a profession where you help people heal through a number of different things, traumas and so on. Do you find that that process helps you heal? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about it also is as I see my, my clients progress and heal, that is so cathartic for me. That is so meaningful for me you know, to know that, you know, they're able to heal and they're able to get there and able to see their lives differently and able to thrive. Right. It gives me hope. And, you know, sharing this story as well in terms of my apartheid experiences, I'm hoping, what I'm hoping for that will happen is that it will give people hope, you know, that you yeah. can you know, and one person does make a difference. It does. And any small action, it doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how you believe how small that is. It all adds, it all adds up. You know, it just takes one drop of water to create a storm, right? To create a flood, you know, and that you, any action that you take, anything, anything, whether it's you black out your screen or you, or you speak to when somebody makes a comment that is a racial, racialized comment, you know, that you, you may say, you know, move away from the conversation or say, it makes me feel very uncomfortable or take action where you see, you know, um, in, in, um, you know, in inequalities, every person uh, actions counts. Mandela said that as well. He said, like, he didn't do this alone. He said it was all of us, all of us, you know, all of us, no matter who we were, we contributed to the country changing. Well, so, I'm so glad that you contributed to South Africa changing. I'm glad you're here in Canada contributing to Canada changing. And I kind of want to leave it there because I want that to be the last thing people hear is that every single individual action counts. And I hope that they take that with them when they uh, when they listen to you and, and to this here today. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure working with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the invite. Thank you, Zoraida, for sharing your incredible story with me and with the listeners of Mindful. If you want to hear more of Zoraida's story, she also recently appeared on the podcast Against the Tides of Racism. Her episode is called From Apartheid to Ubuntu, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening today. Mindful is hosted, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor.